I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we use the clues that we have been given in Scripture to discern the nature of God. We're back again this week, and we're still in Exodus. Only four more weeks until we reach the end of this book. And as we've seen, this book contains within it revelation of just who this God is that we serve. His name has been made known over and over in many ways throughout the course of this book. We have seen his name on display from the very beginning through the repeated declarations from chapters 2 to 4. And in a bush that burns but is not consumed, Hashem declares his name as part of his nature before Moses. That he is a God who sees the hardship of his people. He hears their cries, he knows their plight, and he remembers his covenant that he has made with their ancestors. But it's not these qualities that led Hashem to respond to the calls of his people. All of these could be true about Hashem, and he could still have not acted in the way he did. He could see and hear and know and remember and do nothing at all about the plight of his people. There is more to the story of who Hashem is. There's more to his character than this, as we discover through the rest of this book. And so the narrative unfolds that tells us that he is a God who chooses people to act on his behalf. And the people that he chooses are not perfect. We are humans. We have a fallen nature, and we make mistakes, and we fail him, and we fail each other. But the fact is, is that when God brings someone into our midst to act on his behalf, it rarely looks anything like we want it to look like. When Moses went to Pharaoh with the message from God, things got worse for Israel, and the people who had so recently believed Moses because of the signs that he did in their presence, well, they suddenly doubted once again whether they actually wanted Moses, and by extension, Hashem's help. If increased hardship is what happens when God begins to free us, do we really want it? But both God and Moses persist, and the revelation of God is taken to a new level. Plagues descend on the land that persecuted his people, and through the plagues we discover Hashem's qualities as a God who is powerful and who has authority over all creation. He is a God of justice who will not allow sin and oppression to go unpunished. And he is a God who makes distinction. He separates things from each other. Just as he engaged in an act of separation on every day of creation, so too he separated the Hebrews out from the Egyptians. And on the Passover, this reality became very apparent to all who have ever heard the story. The nature of distinction leads to redemption for those who come under the protection of the blood of the Lamb. Those who are obstinate and refuse to obey, well, they're touched by death. But God gives a choice to most. There are a select few, however, who were created in order to prove a point. As Paul says, some are created for honor and some are 
created for destruction. For most of us, that doesn't really apply. We have a choice. Will we choose Hashem as our God, or will we place something else above Him? And as the people left Egypt, we discover that there is an action that was to be taken to disconnect from Egypt, to separate from the ways of the past, to become fully immersed in the ways of Hashem. And then the most epic story in all of Scripture is recounted. The fact is revealed that Hashem is a mighty warrior who fights for his people to redeem them from the death that pursues. And in just a matter of days, Israel is free. No more slavery, no more oppression, freedom. But freedom towards what end? Because they don't go immediately to take the land that they had been promised. First there comes a test. The building of faith in this new God. And attached to the test is a further revelation of his nature and his qualities. And suddenly Israel, well, they're not so sure that they want to be here. This process is not what they imagined it to be. It was supposed to be redemption and freedom and then the easy life. But as they discovered, the process is redemption. And then tests of faith and Hashem proving himself over and over for their benefit. Once a test has come and God has proven, though, then another test arrives to discover if Israel has learned the lesson. And through this all, God then demonstrates that he does indeed care for every need of his people, even though he leads them through the valley of death. Their food, their water, their clothing, everything that they need is provided from his hand. He even fights with them when enemies attack, as long as their focus remains on him, and as long as they don't trust in their own power to save them. And through hardship and trial, Israel is led to the mountain where Hashem first declared his name to Moses. And at the mountain, Hashem, the God of all creation, the God of power and authority, takes a people to be his own in a covenant of marriage. God and man join together in an intimate relationship. And as part of the ceremony, a ketuvah is read before the people, a standard of covenant. And throughout this series of what we consider to be laws, we discover that the heart of Hashem is towards his people. He is a God who cares deeply for the vulnerable, the slave, the widow, the orphan, the victim. And in this place, ideas such as slaves' rights and women's rights are addressed and introduced to humanity. And a covenant meal is eaten and the covenant is agreed to and seven days are spent celebrating this covenant between God and man. And then Moses disappears for 40 days. Now, while the people do not know where Moses has gone, we know that while on the mountain, the next thing that occurs in a marriage was being addressed. When a man and woman are married, a place is created or found where they can live together in close proximity. And in the course of this place of dwelling, we are taught much about our own relationship with Hashem. Many things, which I'm not going to go back through just now, but were in many of the previous episodes, but which we will review once more before we are done with this book. But as I said, the people, they lost sight of Moses, and they lost sight of the covenant. And they began to feel like fools just sitting around waiting. And so they did something for themselves. They returned back to the ways that they felt were expected of them, the things that they were comfortable with. They broke the covenant that they had just so recently celebrated. And God is understandably upset at this. He had already demonstrated his qualities to the people, but they had grown impatient and acted on their own without him. And yet, in the end, God forgives the people of their sins. 
His anger and his justice takes a back seat to his other qualities. He brought upon them and made them feel the shame that they had brought on him by building an image and calling it by his name. But this week, we will see him forgive the people. And this week, we'll discover just what qualities it is that had precipitated all that has come up to this point. Let's go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 11, and read. Exodus 33, verse 11 through 34, 26. Thus Hashem spoke to Moshe face to face, as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Yehoshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not leave the tent. And Moshe said to Hashem, See, you are saying to me, Bring up this people. But you have not made known to me whom you would send with me, though you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my eyes. And now, please, if I have found favor in your eyes, please show me your way, and let me know you, that I may find favor in your eyes, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence does go, and I shall give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence is not going, do not lead us up from here. For how then shall it be known that I have found favor in your eyes, I and your people, except you go with us? Then we shall be distinguished, I and your people, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And Hashem said to Moshe, Even this word you have spoken I shall do, for you have found favor in my eyes, and I know you by name. And then he said, Please show me your esteem. And he said, I shall cause all my goodness to pass before you, and I shall proclaim the name of Hashem before you, and I shall favor him who I favor, and shall have compassion on him whom I have compassion. But he said, You are unable to see my face, for man does not see me and live. And Hashem said, See, there is a place with me, and you shall stand on the rock, and it shall be while my esteem passes by, that I shall put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I shall take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And Hashem said to Moshe, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I shall write on these tablets the words that were spoken of the first tablets, which you broke. And be ready in the morning, then you shall come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And let no man come up with you, and let no man be seen in all the mountain. And let not even the flock or the herd feed in front of that mountain. And he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moshe rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as Hashem had commanded him. And he took two tablets of stone in his hand. And Hashem came down in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Hashem. And Hashem passed before him and proclaimed, Hashem, Hashem! An El, compassionate and showing favor, patient and great in loving kindness and truth, watching over loving commitment for thousands, forgiving crookedness and transgression and sin, but by no means leaving unpunished, visiting the crookedness of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moshe hurried and bowed himself toward the earth and did obeisance and said, If now I have found favor in your eyes, O Hashem, I pray, let Hashem go on in our midst, even though we are a stiff-necked people and forgive our crookedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And he said, See, I am making a covenant before all your people. I am going to do wonders such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Hashem. For what I am doing with you is awesome. Guard what I command you today. See, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Yebusite. Guard yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But break down the altars and smash their pillars and cut down their asherim. 
for you do not bow yourselves to another mighty one. For Hashem, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Thus you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they whore after their mighty ones and sacrifice to their mighty ones. And one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifices. And you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters whore after their mighty ones, and make your sons whore after their mighty ones. Do not make a molded mighty one for yourself. Guard the festival of Matzot for seven days. You eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, in the appointed time of the new moon of Abib, because in the new moon of Abib you came out from Mitzrayim. Everyone opening the womb is mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether bull or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you ransom with a lamb, and if you do not ransom, then you shall break his neck. Every firstborn of your sons you shall ransom, and they shall not appear before me empty-handed. Six days you work, but on the seventh day you rest. In plowing time and in harvest you rest, and perform the festival of Shavuot for yourselves, of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the festival in the ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times in the year all your men are to appear before the Master Hashem, the Elohim of Israel. For I dispossess nations before you and shall enlarge your borders and let no one covet your land when you go up to appear before Hashem, your Elohim, three times in the year. Do not slay the blood of my sacrifices with leaven and do not let the sacrifice of the festival of Pesach remain until morning. Bring the first fruits of your land to the house of Hashem, your Elohim. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. So back in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses has a conversation with the God of Israel. He arrived at Mount Sinai after noticing a thorn bush that seemed to be on fire. As he approached the bush, Moses, for the first time, hears God speak clearly, as Hashem tells Moses to remove his sandals, because he stood on holy ground. As the scene proceeds, Moses has a conversation with Hashem that will forever change the course of history, not just for Moses and not just for Israel and not only for them and Egypt. But the course of all human history is changed in this short conversation that is held on the side of a mountain. God speaking to a man face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And that's how this Parsha opens. Moses is in the tent speaking to God face to face. And in the book of Numbers, we will discover that this is a unique state of affairs with Moses. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 through 8. And he said, Hear now my words. If your prophet is of Hashem, I shall make myself known to him in a vision. And I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moshe. He is trustworthy in all my house. I speak with him mouth to mouth and plainly and not in riddles. And he sees the form of Hashem. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moshe? And Moses is unique in all the world and in all of history for this plain fact. Moses spoke to God face to face. Not in riddles. Not in parables. Not in visions. Not in dreams. And as we'll see shortly, this turn of phrase is an idiom. It does not mean that Moses saw God's face, but that the way that Hashem spoke to Moses was in plain and audible speech. Because Moses is trustworthy in the house of Hashem. And here Israel is, having just been shamed by God. Thousands of their brethren are dead. The jewelry that had so recently been objects of honor have, because of the actions of the others, become objects of shame. And the presence of God has left the camp and is now separate from them. But the objective still lies before them. The promised land is still a promise, right? They haven't lost that, have they? And so Moses once again pleads with God. And in essence, Moses says, you called me for this. If I have been faithful, then please teach me your ways. And consider, please, that we won't know if you've forgiven us. 
we won't have the honor to return to the world and conquer in your name unless your presence goes with us. These people, they're not going to conquer anyone while in shame. With your presence, though, it will be demonstrated to everyone, including ourselves, that we are indeed your people. And then Moses asks one last thing. Please allow me to see your honor, your esteem, or your glory. Hashem responds to this and promises that he will cause all of his goodness to pass before Moses. He will proclaim his own name before Moses. But he will grace whom he decides to grace, and he will have compassion on whom he decides to have compassion. Seeing the face of God, seeing the fullness of God's glory and honor, that's simply not an option. It's impossible for a human to literally see the face of God while being alive. Now, all through this passage, we find something that's fascinating, but we only see it if we're reading in Hebrew. The Parsha began with God speaking to Moses face to face. Panim al panim. And then Moses pleads for the presence of Hashem to go with Israel as they traveled. And the word translated as presence in Hebrew is pane. It's a word that finds its root in the word panim, face. And Moses begins by hearing God. Hearing God clearer than anyone ever heard God before. But he knows that the rest of the people are in shame, and hearing God means nothing if God's presence is not with you. And so he asks for that. He asks for the people to be returned to a place of honor by experiencing the return of the presence of God. He asks for the people to experience the face of God as he experiences it. He asks for an increase in their experience of God for the people, and then he asks for an increase in the experience of God for himself. He's asking for a communal rising up. Bring us all up to a greater understanding of who you are, God. And God grants his requests. He promises that he will accompany Israel on their travels. And he promises that Moses will have a closer experience of God than ever before. But the closeness that Moses desires, it's not possible. The gulf between God of creation and humans, it's too vast. There's this giant gulf of death that separates us. But a pink at its fringe, that's possible. And so a way is made. Now up to this point, Moses likely had not seen much of Hashem. Now he had witnessed what the elders saw on the mountain in chapter 24, the paved work like sapphires under the feet of God. But the rest of the time as Moses spoke with Hashem, whether on the mountains or in his tent, a cloud obscured whatever form may have been present, if there was even a form to be observed at all. But now Moses gets the opportunity to see Hashem in some form, and it's with this promise that chapter 34 begins. And chapter 34 begins with hope. Hashem tells Moses to cut two new tablets with his own hands. The first two tablets, they had been cut by the hand of God, but now Moses has to work to reestablish this covenant. The representative of the people must use his hands to forge the renewed covenant, and the chosen one must use his feet to ascend the mountain of God. And just as has happened in so many other important events in biblical history, Moses rises early in the morning to comply with the command that he had been given. And we find this phrase, as we track it through scripture, that it is at times of great import that characters rise early in the morning. Whether it's Abraham rising early to witness the destruction of Sodom, or Abraham rising early to send Hagar on her way, or Abraham rising early to lead Isaac to Mount Moriah, 
or Isaac rising early to swear an oath with Abimelech, or Jacob rising early after his vision of the ladder to the heavens, or Laban rising early to go his own way after cutting a covenant with Jacob, or Moses himself rising early to meet Pharaoh by the river, or his rising early to build an altar to Hashem in celebration of the covenant that had been cut. When we see this phrase, rose early in the morning, it signifies that something of great import is getting ready to occur. And if we track this further into the Torah, we'll see that this phrase is used only one other time throughout the Torah in Numbers 14. And that's when Israel decides to go back and attack Canaan after they've been told that they were going to be wandering for the next 40 years. But we see here that Moses rises early in the morning, ascending the mountain with the two stones of the covenant so that he might catch a glimpse of God. And for the second time in the book of Exodus, Hashem proclaims his own name to Moses from the top of Mount Sinai. In the beginning of chapter 3, the name of Hashem is declared when Moses asks. Exodus 3, 13-15 And Moshe said to Elohim, See, when I come to the children of Israel, and I say to them, The Elohim of your fathers have sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And Elohim said to Moshe, I am that which I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And Elohim said further to Moshe, Thus you are to say to the children of Israel, Hashem, Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Yitzhak, and the Elohim of Yaakov, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my remembrance to all generations. This first time that Hashem declares his name to Moses, he does so in a way that reveals his unknowable nature. Ehiyeh asher ehiyeh. Basically, I will be what I'm going to be. And then he declares the tetragrammaton, the yod Hey vav Hey, that is his moniker and his identifier. And then finally he proclaims his reputation, the history that the Hebrews have with him. The, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This time, however, this time Hashem declares something much more intimate. This time as he passes before Moses, he declares his character. The driving force behind all that he has done up to this point and beyond. And this declaration of his name is one that is more intimate and personal than it was before. And it's one that we should all take to heart. For if we are to be his image in the world, then these should define our character. This is what we should exhibit for the world to see. Exodus 33, 6-7 And Hashem passed before him and proclaimed, Hashem, Hashem. In the second declaration, the name, the Tetragrammaton, is repeated twice. This is a textual symbol that we should pay attention to something that's going on here. There's something more going on here than just the speaking of the yod heh vav His true name is being revealed. So then it continues on with a God who is compassionate. Uh, that's the word rachum in the Hebrew. It means merciful or full of compassion. And showing grace or favor. Now, anybody who tells you the Old Testament God is not a God of grace, take him right here, Exodus 33, verse 6. He declares, I am a God who is gracious. The God of the Exodus, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is full of grace. It is his nature from the beginning. His nature does not change. This God who would reforge his covenant with the people who had blatantly disobeyed him, is gracious by definition. Next, we read that he is 
patient. In the Hebrew, it's arech afim. Okay, it's flaring his nostrils is what it means in literal speech. It means slow to speak. The idea of flaring your nostrils being one of what your face looks like when you're angry. So if he's slow to flare his nostrils, he's slow to anger. And great in loving kindness or loving commitment. The word that's used here is chesed. This is one that we've talked about previously. Usually this is translated as merciful or loving kindness, but as we've spoken about it previously, I think it better holds the idea of being loyal to covenant. Loving kindness and their literal meaning and mercy, they're both covered by the word rachum, which opened this declaration. This particular word is about staying true to the promises that you have made. If you've made a covenant, stay true to it. Next is truth, emet, faithfulness. The word truth in Hebrew means way more than not speaking a lie, but rather it bears on how a person acts. Faithfulness is the best English word, in my opinion, to express this idea, and it is a legitimate definition according to every concordance. Faithfulness means living up to what you have spoken. Then he continues on, watching over loving kindness or loving commitment for thousands. Again, the word chesed. He watches over the loyalty to covenant for thousands. So not only is he loyal to the covenants that he has made, but he is willing to be a witness and ensure that others are loyal to the covenants that they have made. Now, in the ancient Near East, this was a central idea because it was a person's God who ensured that they kept the terms of the covenant. The gods were always part of the covenant treaties. And it was the God's job to oversee and to enact punishment if the covenant was broken. So Hashem is here saying, I watch over the chesed. I make sure that my people stay loyal to what they do. Then we get to it. Forgiving of crookedness and transgression and sin. And this is the quality that most focus on in the New Testament era. But the quality of forgiving crookedness and transgression and sin is not a New Testament idea. This idea begins with Adam, and it's revealed here very explicitly with great detail. I mean, Israel had just transgressed their covenant, but Hashem is acting to forgive them. And we treat forgiveness of sins as if this was a new idea that only began with the death of Yeshua. But God has always been a God who forgives sin. And then he finishes, but by no means leaving unpunished, visiting the crookedness of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And that final bit, that final quality that Hashem speaks of is justice. Just because God forgives sins does not mean that there's no justice for those who have sinned. There are consequences when one acts in a way that is not congruent with the way of life. Actions cause reactions. We see this clearly in the case of David and Bathsheba. David sins by committing adultery, and the case can be made for his sin being more of a rape than just adultery. And then to cover his sin, he commits murder. And there are consequences for the sin, even though he's forgiven by God. The son of this union dies after only seven days. David's own son then rapes his daughter. His oldest son then kills the offending son, and then a civil war is initiated, and David is then shamed before the entire nation as he flees before his son, and his concubines are all taken by his son in public. 
and yet David was forgiven of his sin by God. But the consequences of his sin still remained. God's justice still has a place to be expressed. God will by no means leave unpunished those who commit transgressions. Actions have consequences, even if forgiveness is only a repentance away. We would all do well, I think, to remember this plainly stated fact. Just after Hashem declares his own name and character, Moses quickly falls and worships God and asks for God to live up to the character that he just declared. He says, please, Hashem, extend your forgiveness towards us and take us as your people once again. And it's with this plea that Hashem declares that he is renewing the covenant that was just broken. And he says that he is about to accomplish wonders which the world has never seen. Something unlike anything that's ever been done before. But wait a minute. They just walked through a sea on dry ground. They saw water come out of a rock. Food falls from the heavens on a daily basis. They saw the sun go out and hail and fire fall from the sky simultaneously. But now? Now God is going to do something that's never been seen before? And it's this thing that will cause the nations to know that Hashem is God? What could he possibly be talking about? What could be so fantastically amazing that if splitting the sea and fire and ice falling from the sky did not convince them that this will? If we take our cue from the text, the event that's coming is the conquest of the land of Canaan. It is the complete and utter annihilation of the inhabitants of the land that will cause the world to sit back and wonder at the power of Hashem. Because if there is one thing that the world understands, and we see it even today in our popular media and world stage, power exerted over others speaks volumes to the world at large. It speaks in a way that the world understands and can appreciate. Some slaves being set free from a distant land with the accomplishment of some magic tricks? Oh, no big deal. Sure, it's cool and all, but what is it to us? That same slave nation then driving out the giants of Canaan? The seven nations of Canaan being brought low by this weak people? These people who were unable to free themselves from slavery, then taking up arms and destroying not just one nation such as Egypt, but seven who are even more powerful. That is astounding. That is amazing. Surely their God is a powerful God. This is the amazing thing that the world will understand. Not just that God will fight for a helpless people to free them, but that God would then equip that helpless people to be a powerful force in the world, and that his spirit would give them power that is inconceivable to the natural mind. But this promise of power comes with a warning. I am Hashem. I am making a covenant with you, and I will empower you to defeat the nations that inhabit the land. But I am also a God of covenant. I am also the God of life. I am the God of creation. I will not share my people with another God. For in truth, there are no other gods. The relationship between man and God is a relationship of covenant. It is a marriage, and just as a husband will feel jealousy if his wife is intimate with another man, so too God is jealous if his covenant partner becomes intimate with another God. 
And so the warning comes, don't make covenants with the people of this land. Now remember, in the ancient Near East, if you made a covenant, the name of the gods of the signatories on the covenant were present. You would be putting yourself under the power of another god to make a covenant with the nations. And you would be making friends. Actually, it's deeper than friends. You would become partners with people who do not share the same focus that you do. They will invite you to participate in their sacrifices, and for the sake of friendship and partnership, you will go and worship their gods. You will join your families to their families, and yours and your sons will worship their gods. Do not make idols for yourselves or participate in any idol worship. One of the things that we must recognize about God is that when we come into covenant with him, we must accept him as he is. We cannot change his nature, nor should we seek to. He is who he says he is, whether we like it or not. We must be sure that we worship him as he is, and not as we desire for him to be. Well, just after this, once again, we read a series of commands that seem in many ways disconnected from what's occurring in the text. If we pay close attention, we discover that these commands are placed here purposefully. And they highlight the overarching theme that's been under discussion this whole time. Keep the festival of matzah. The firstborn will be ransomed, and they shall not appear before me empty-handed. Keep the Shabbat. Keep the festivals of Shavuot and Sukkot. And all of you will come before me three times a year. What? What? How are those connected? They seem so disconnected on the surface. What is the overarching theme here? Well, if you examine them all, you take a step back and put them next to each other, you'll realize that they are all about being in the presence of God. Moses spoke to God in his presence, but the presence of God has now left the people. Then Moses pleads for Hashem's presence to return to the people, and he pleads for a deeper personal experience of Hashem's presence. And Moses is granted the request and is brought into God's presence. And the clearest declaration of the character of Hashem and all of Scripture is laid out before him in this place of intimacy. And God agrees to bring his presence back into Israel. And he warns against entering into the intimate presence of other gods. And then he informs the people, not of every festival on the calendar, but specifically what are called the Chag festivals or the pilgrimage festivals. The festivals when the people were to literally all travel to Jerusalem and enter into the presence of God in his temple. And guess what? Shabbat's included on this list. And the sanctification of the firstborn is part of this list as well. Why? Well, it's because the firstborn shouldn't come before him empty-handed. They had to enter into his presence and be redeemed after they were born. And the final verses of this Parsha, they continue on in this vein by giving a few pointers on how to approach the presence of God. Do not sacrifice with leaven. Do not leave the sacrifice of the Pesach until morning. Do bring your first fruits into the house of Hashem, into his presence. Do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. That last one seems a little bit out of place, but it's a reminder here to not engage in the worship practices and superstitions of the nations. You can actually go to Tel Aviv today and order goat boiled in goat milk. 
at a restaurant. It was something that the Canaanites did as part of a fertility ritual. I'm not going to go much further into this particular line at this point. It is addressed once more in the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll get into a deeper discussion on what exactly this means then. And that's where the Parsha ends on that note. Now, if we examine the entirety of it, we see that it is all about the presence of Hashem in the midst of his people and how the people are to treat that presence. Now, on another level, there is something extremely important also going on in this Parsha. Because you see, Israel had just broken the covenant that Hashem had cut with them. They had disregarded his commands and quickly reverted back to what they knew, simply because they had not seen his representative in a few weeks. But God is a forgiving God, and so what does he do with his people? He renews the covenant that had been broken. He listens to the pleas of his representative on earth and reforges the covenant that had been broken. And the representative then ascends to the side of God and makes intercession for God's presence to go with the people. And God gives his presence to the people to empower them in the mission to defeat the evil of the land. Now this entire passage is about the renewal of the covenant. It is a foreshadowing of what God will do in the earth through the death and resurrection of his son Yeshua. Uh, Jeremiah 31 speaks of this renewed covenant at a time when Israel had been rejected and Judah was about to be rejected because of their failure to keep the covenant. It tells of the presence of God being removed from the people and gives a promise of a renewal of the covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31-33, See, the days are coming, declares Hashem, when I shall make a renewed covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Yehudah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I strengthened their hand to bring them out of the land of Mitzrayim, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares Hashem. For this is my covenant I shall make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Hashem. I shall put my Torah in their inward parts, and write it on their hearts, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. He will write the covenant on their hearts. In this passage, the people of Israel are described as stiff-necked people. But in other passages, this quality of stubbornness to one's own way is spoken of as having a heart of stone. Ezekiel speaks of it this way when describing this exact same event in Ezekiel 36, 26-27. And I shall give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I shall take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I shall give you a heart of flesh and put my spirit within you, and I shall cause you to walk in my laws and guard my judgments and shall do them. And we see Moses take the stones which had been cut by human hands into God's presence so that he could write his covenant upon them. This narrative is a symbolic picture of what Jeremiah describes and which is fulfilled in the blood of Yeshua. The covenant is renewed. The law is written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. Those tablets of stone being our own hard hearts. And usually when we consider this, we conceptualize the softening of our hearts and the law being written in our hearts. We live that out as a stance of obedience at any cost. The idea that the Torah is written in black and white, that the law is written on stone, as it were, and so there is no allowance for deviation from what has been written. That is to say, no matter what. But is this the main thrust of what's being described here? 
Too many times this drive for obedience at any cost does not take into account the cost to others that this obedience might include. The donkey in the ditch does not care if you were commanded to keep the Sabbath. The lame man does not have to wait for one more day because you can't work today. The hungry man escaping his enemies should not be forbidden from eating the bread of the presence. The man who was beaten and left for dead does not care that your position of service and obedience calls for you to not touch the dead. The poor person in the gutter does not care that you are commanded to spend your tithes for your own enjoyment on the festival days, when for them the festivals are nothing but a time of misery and sorrow. And this is what obedience at any cost costs. There is a human toll to the idea of obedience at any cost. Blind obedience without concern for others leads to a complete disregard for the spirit of these excellent instructions that Hashem has given us. Instead, the softening of our hearts must go deeper than simply rote obedience. It must be understood as bringing us closer to the character of our God. And I want to challenge us all to conceptualize the softening of our hearts in this way. Rather than obedience at any cost, to instead think of the law on our hearts in the way that this chapter speaks on this change, the way that God himself declares to be his ways. That is, to take on and embody the character traits that he himself declared from his very mouth before Moses. Compassion and mercy means caring for the weak and the vulnerable, assuming the best of others, and working actively to make their lives better. Gracious giving to others what they don't deserve, what they haven't earned, supporting and uplifting others in their need. Patient. We're not just patient with others, but patient with ourselves, recognizing that we will fail and make bad judgment calls, just as will everyone else. We will not live up to the standard of relationship that we expect, and neither will anyone else. But most of all, patient with God to do His will in His timing. And all too often, his timing is a whole lot longer than we wish it would be. Great in Chesed. We must remain loyal to our covenants, not just to the covenants that we have made with God, but to all covenants and agreements that we have in our lives. Full of truth, faithfulness, to live our lives faithful to God's word, faithful to our own word. We should always aim to live our lives without hypocrisy. Watching over Chesed, we should do what is within our power to assist others in keeping the covenants that they have made. Forgiving crookedness, transgression, and sin. We should have an attitude of forgiveness. We should always extend the hand of forgiveness to those who have wronged us. But as humans, this also means seeking to find forgiveness from those whom we have wronged. And after all of this, when the final matter is heard, we must seek justice and redress for wrongs, for actual and legitimate wrongs, not for being offended and not for feeling hurt, for actual wrongs. Because forgiveness doesn't mean without consequences. If someone has been harmed or victimized, then the victim must be repaid. Restitution must be enacted. Justice must be found. And both justice and forgiveness can be achieved at the same time. They are not mutually exclusive as we see in the story of David, and as we see in the story of Israel, and hopefully as we see in our own lives. 
For we will all receive the just rewards of our sin. Our flesh will perish just as Yeshua's did 2,000 years ago. Our sin has already gotten the best of us. But the new covenant in his blood has defeated sin. And just as occurred with him on the following first fruits, we too will be raised to live in a world that is governed by this covenant of life. For death will be defeated. Death has been defeated. Yeshua rose as the first fruits of the harvest that was brought into the house of Hashem in the heavens. And all because of the character of our God. And we are called to bear his image. And through the new covenant and the Holy Spirit, we've actually been enabled to do so. And as we draw closer and closer to his image, we take steps on the path of life. And that's something that we must do as we derish chai. We must seek to emulate his image as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.